0: I'm going to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'll be reading this morning from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as we begin a new series of sermons through the book of 1 John, entitled, Walking in the Light. So 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, And with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Father, Your Word says eternal life has been made manifest. I'm asking in Jesus' name that Your Spirit leads us in such a way that By the time our service is over, we wouldn't just hear that it's true, that eternal life has been made manifest. It'd be the strength of our heart, our portion forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated and, uh, hey, just as we begin a study in the book of First John, if you have a Bible or if you're scrolling on a screen and that's how you're reading the Bible, I just want you to look, just flip pages or do a couple of screen taps or whatnot and just look through the book of First John with me for a moment. You'll, you'll see pretty quickly. It's not very long, is it? Not a really long book. And, and on the front end of our study, I'd love for you to maybe think of your heart like a sponge and First John like a big bucket of water. And you just resolve here as a church family, as we study through 1 John, that when we come together, it's a book you've read in the week, thought about, prayed over. God can use his word to transform your life, but not kind of in osmosis type way. If you have the humility to say, God, I need to know what you say. So I'd love at the end of our study that you are really familiar with what First John says what God says in it. Again, not just so if you were on Jeopardy and they had a category, 1 John, you'd say, I can answer these questions. But God is bringing to bear His heart on your real life. Walking in the light. I mean, it's October the 30th. We're in for a little bit of a dark week, most likely. This is kind of how our culture is in these days. It's darkness. And for some strange reason, that's sort of gloried in. Are you walking in darkness, or are you walking in the light? I take that phrase straight from 1 John chapter 1, and uh, I just love the apostle John. He's the apostle that lives longest on earth. He's still alive and most likely writing this letter after all the other apostles have have died. And you know how most of them die. They don't die nice and comfortable deaths. They have their heads cut off, lives taken, and John is still there. there's no one in the New Testament quite like the Apostle John. I mean, he's the son of Zebedee, a fisherman of some prominence on the Sea of Galilee. And his mom's name is Salome. There's some evidence in Scripture that Salome may have even been Mary's sister. We know his family contributed financially to the ministry of Jesus. And before John was an apostle, of, a disciple of Jesus, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. I mean, just think about that. You can't improve on having those two teachers. Of of course, Jesus, but, but John the Baptist, Jesus said of him, there's no one greater ever been born of woman than him. And when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, there's the Messiah, John had enough sense to say, well, I'm going to follow him then. Along with his older brother, James and Simon Peter, John forms a little bit of an inner circle among Jesus's disciples. The three of them were there at times and places that nobody else really was. He's just think about what John saw in the public ministry of Jesus. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. In fact, he had a basket and he went out and served the loaves and fish and never getting to the bottom of it, right? He was there when Jesus heals the paralytic and lepers and the blind man. He's there when Jesus raises the dead. He hears the teachings of Jesus, the sermon on the mountain and the parables. He saw Jesus walk on water and cast out demons. He's the only of the apostles at the cross, Right? He's the only one who's there as Jesus is crucified. And as Jesus is crucified, he looks at John and says, I need you to take care of my mother, Mary. How about this? John walked into the empty tomb. Walked into the empty tomb. He was there as Jesus ascends back to heaven. He's there when the Holy Spirit comes in power at Pentecost. He's there for the early church in Jerusalem. He's one of the most prominent writers of the New Testament. He writes, of course, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and and 3rd John. And it's around 85 AD that John writes this epistle. So about 50 years have gone by from the resurrection of Jesus. That's why I entitled the message, Our Old Friend John you might know that song from decades ago. Has anybody here seen my old friend John? You, you need some people in your life who've walked further down the trail than you have. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, we are a youth-obsessed culture, and I love young people, but the Bible says if you want to get wise, you look at people who've been around for a little while. When Julie and I were celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary, we went to Virginia in the mountains, and I was walking up a trail, and uh, Julie's just indestructible honestly I mean whatever we do she just goes with it and does it and I was having a little I was having a little bit of trouble I was ready to take a break I was like man we're going to this place called the overlook where it's going to be this fantastic view but we weren't there yet and I was kind of leaning on my walking stick saying I don't think I can can do and about that time here comes walking a man in his 80s down the trail and as he approached I stopped leaning on my stick and said oh how are you sir and we have got to talking. He ended up becoming a, a, a pretty good friend of ours. And uh, I've enjoyed talking and trading emails. He lives in the Washington, D.C. area. And just, he's, just a, he's just a fascinating guy. And, and I said to myself, if he can get there, I can get there. Now, here's John, oldest person in his church and the most hopeful and the most joyful. Isn't that good news? I mean, there's something about living in this world that if you're not careful, as the years go by, you don't get more joyful. You actually get more cynical. You know what I'm saying? That's really easy to do. But here's the question that I want to ask you. Should that be, should that be true of followers of Jesus? Now, you might say, well, man, John was there at the empty tomb, but I want you to listen. You could listen to the apostles themselves to say, you don't lack any advantage that they had. That, that, that they didn't have any advantage over you. You've got the whole Scripture." you got the whole testimony. Man, there, there, there should be in us, if, in 1 John, may God use it for this purpose. If we know Jesus, we have joy that's unshakable. It's not depending on whatever the headline is today, because here's the headline. Jesus is alive. That's the banner over the life of the follower of Jesus. Everything else is subservient to that, and he's coming back soon. And I don't think he's coming back for a bunch of people who are cynical. He's coming back for people who are joyful. And man, John has seen it for 50 years that following Jesus does not lead to a life of ease or comfort. He's going to end up on the island of Patmos with hardly anybody around. But the Lord is with him. You know what the most important reality of John's whole life was? You can read it. You can pick up on it when he writes. The most important reality of John's life was he was a man loved by Jesus. And friends, it doesn't get any better than that. Is that the most, the most important reality in your life? So as we study through 1 John, you might just want to make this a habit. When you wake up, and I don't know if you're like me in the morning, you got to kind of get your bearings. But as soon as you say, oh, it's whatever day it is, just just say, the most important reality in my life today is I am somebody who is loved by Jesus. And you don't have to wonder if that's true. You look at the cross and know that it is true. So John... You know this about him. Where's the day when he's a young man? Jesus said, Those are the sons of thunder. There's a man, he was in a Samaritan village. And Jesus walked in that village, and the Samaritan village didn't want a whole lot to do with Jesus. Do you remember John what he said? Hey, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume this whole place? Do you ever feel like that? said, man, I'm ready to go. Please receive this. Jesus didn't affirm that in John. That was more evidence of some things that needed to change in John's life. But here's the good news. When he's 80 plus years old here in 1 John, man, just read what he has to say. He's older than everybody. That's why as you, as you read through it, he refers to most people as children or little children. He, he can be a friend to us, his life and example. As he ages, he gets less angry, more gracious. Less territorial, more generous. Less hoping in the passing things of the world and more confident in the eternal things of God. So let the life and example of John point you to to the real uh, help, the faithfulness of God. I don't think there's a better lesson for us to learn than this. John was deeply loved by Jesus, and that love that Jesus has for John defined John's life. Can you say the same thing this morning, that your words, your actions, your heart are ruled by the love of God? Or maybe to ask it another way, if you were to sit down today and write your church a letter, what would you say? And would it sound like this? If you could say whatever it is that you want to say and say, if everybody's going to listen to me, I've got a message to say. Do you know what John's is? Things like, if you don't love your brother who you can see, you can't love God who you don't see. Don't love the world. The world's passing away. Walk in the light. So, so as I was uh, sitting down for a little while and praying this week, I just started to jot down from the first four verses of 1 John some godly encouragements. And that's my message. That's my sermon this morning. Some things that we see John write that we want to think about together. And I'll start with this one. Godly encouragements from John. Even if you've been around a long time, you've not been around nearly as long as God. And isn't that good news? As some, of, some of us would say in the room, I'm 80-some years old, I'm 90-some years old. I'm really well, I'm, I'm, how, to, how to say this graciously, I've been around a while. Friends, if you're 90 years old, you're made for eternity. you're really young. You're really young. You've hardly got started right. And if you've been around a long time, here's the good news: nobody's been around nearly as long as God. That's how He starts. You know, if, if uh, I guess I'm in middle age, whatever that means, I'm, I'm over that hill, I guess, and, and there's can something rise in my heart to say, hey, I, I kind of I know some things because I've been around a little while. We tend to start with ourselves. John doesn't. He said, that which was from the beginning. John begins with acknowledging that even though no one on the entire planet at that time as he's writing this letter, has been around as long as him, or, or, better said, has seen as many things as him. There's no, there's one who's greater than him, more important than him, more to be listened to and esteemed than him. It helps us know the best people to listen to are those who listen best to the Lord. In fact, everything John says in this introduction directs his, his hearers to, to, look, to look at and think about God. You know, most of the history of the world took place before you and I ever were. None of the history of the world has taken place when God was not. He's been from the beginning. God has seen the trials and tribulations of his people through every single generation. God was there, the burning bush, Moses. God was there in the time of Esther. God was there in the time of Jeremiah. God was the time of, there in the time of the Apostle Paul. Sometimes I think when I pray, I think, God, you've heard the prayers of the Apostle Paul and what he was enduring and going through. What must my prayer sound like sometimes? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is what I'm troubled by? God, has heard the, God the Father has heard the prayer of his son, the Lord Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great book, uh, Life in Christ Studies in First John, and in the very first chapter of that book, he, he writes this, and it's been really helpful for me. He says, now the apostle, writing as an old man, was addressing people who were in a very difficult world. I do not know how you feel, but I always think that in and of itself, that in and of itself is a profound source of comfort. Half our troubles arise out of the fact that we always seem to think that it is only our world and our time that has been difficult. But if history and the study of history, especially as we find it in the Bible, does anything, it should give us a true perspective. When you look back across the story of the church and of the saints, you find that the world has often been as it is today. In a sense, we are confronting nothing new at the present time. It has all happened before, and thank God, there is provision for us here in our perplexities and in our difficulties. Hey, look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is the key to the whole book. So look at it with me. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know. John's always wanting you to have some confidence in some things, Right? We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You ready for a pop quiz? How much of the world lies in the power of the evil one? The whole world. We we keep wanting to scratch out a little place that's not, right? Fine, where it's not the whole world is, but also where, if you're a follower of Jesus, where are you from? From God. So this helps me that I need to stop thinking that the world is going to get less evil. It was evil in John's day. It was evil in Jeremiah's day. It's evil in our day. It's been evil since the fall and will be evil until Christ restores all things. So I don't want to misplace my hope. Who are those from God? John the Baptist is from God. John said that in John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light so that all may believe in him. A little bit later it says, some men sent from the Pharisees came to question John. Who sends you out? Who sends you out? Are you sent out from God or by somebody else? Peter, James, John, Jesus... That's the line you belong to if you belong to God. So let's say those names again. John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, Jesus. What happened to them in the world? I believe when the church at Ephesus gathered to worship and pray, that's where John is when he writes the letter. No one's older than John. No one's seen more than John. His brother James. Forty-five some odd years before he writes this letter. is killed. Head cut off. All his contemporaries. Peter, Paul, Mary. It's another 60's reference I guess. But. So many others have died, often violently so. And yet when they gather to worship, no one's more joyful than John. The only way, y'all, to be joyful in the world is to not belong to the world. It's the only way to be joyful in the world is to not belong to to the world. That which was from the beginning is your heart rooted in the God of eternity. And John's testimony, look what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's testimony is that the transcendent God of the universe came near in the person of Jesus. And John heard him. John saw him. John touched him. John believes him. John follows him. It's amazing. First encouragement. John, even if we've been around a long time, we've not been around nearly as long as God. Some of the most important people in a church family are those who've been around the longest, and particularly having gone through the fire, are able to say, you can trust him. He is good. He will be faithful. Secondly, another encouragement is that John never withdraws from other believers but has joy in building others up. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing, but John has fellowship with God, but he also wants to have fellowship with other people. In other words, John's approach to life isn't, hey, I got a good thing going on with God and y'all just figure it out for yourself. You can't have fellowship with God and then not desire to have fellowship with other people. Does it make sense, right? You're never abiding in Christ unless you are increasingly care about other people to abide in Christ. They go together. There's never a selfishness or one way that we often say, the gospel never came to you to stay with you. It came to you, it's entrusted to you so that you can take to someone else. But here's the reality. If you spend enough time in and around church, you're gonna get hurt and you're gonna get disappointed. Sometimes you might get so hurt and so disappointed you want to withdraw and say, I'm done. Here's what we learned from John. You can't become more like Jesus and care less for the local church. And you cannot become more like Jesus and withdraw from the local church. Well, we know at least two things from John's life to be able to say there were times that John really hurt other believers. There were. Remember the whole, uh, basically the whole public ministry of Jesus. James and John were kind of going around with a campaign that they wanted to be the greatest. They completely misconstrued the ministry of Jesus. They think they're going to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to sit on the throne in a kind of a military political way. And they even get their mom involved in this. And she kind of goes up and says, can one sit on your right hand and one on your left? And Jesus looks at her and says, you have no idea what you're asking. And then the other disciples hear it. And you remember what the Bible says? sharp disagreement arose among them. Which of them is the greatest? John's been there. John was there in Jerusalem when some of the Gentiles came up and said, listen, you're neglecting. You're neglecting the widows in the daily distribution. They're being overlooked. They're being neglected. John is, and Peter are... are praying about this and said, well, we, we can't, we can't uh, stop focusing on the word and prayer, but we listen to what you're saying and that there are people being neglected. We, we won't forsake ministry in the word, but we need some help. Because in a church, you've got to have people who say, well, we, we're not going to neglect God, but then we're also not going to neglect people who are in need. It's, it's going to be both. It can only ever be both. But here is John In his older years, not withdrawn, but persistent in continuing to seek to build up the church. Why? Friends, there's only one answer to that. There's only one way that you will, over the course of your lifetime, persist in seeking to build up the local church. And it's Jesus. That's it. All the other incentives, if they haven't kind of proven unsustainable already, they will. Only one thing will keep you from being, uh, keep you continuing to be a proclaimer, and that's Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus lives inside of John, and if and if you have a testimony like John's, it'll be the same for you. It'll be important for you to build others up, not build others up if they build you up. That's not how God treated us, right? Jesus is not sitting there saying, "I'm going to start loving them when they start loving me." No not grace grace is not a transaction I'll extend as much to you as you have extended to me now here's how it works for our heart we extend as much to others not as they've extended to us but rather as much as God has extended to us that's what I extend to others and friends I can tell you this I don't care if you live to be a million years old on planet earth you're not going to exhaust that resource and get to the bottom of the grace that has been extended to you in Christ Jesus. The gospel eternally frees you up from a self-focus. You're liberated from going through life, treating people on the basis of how they treat you. it's very telling that John says that his own joy can't be complete until they're joyful. Third encouragement, if you know the word of life, you will proclaim the word of life. Look at verse two. The life was made manifest And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Do you see it? It will will never, ever, ever go like this. The life was manifest to us and we have seen it, period. It will never, ever say we have seen the word of life. We have made manifest to us and we kept it to ourselves. Let's hear from John. If you do not not testify and proclaim the word of life, according to John here in chapter 1, the most likely explanation for that is you've never really seen it. Because you can't see it and be silent about it. Amen? You say again, well, John, he walked into the empty tomb. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's still at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, even when you were dead, made us alive and have seated us with him in the heavenly places in order that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is the gift of God is not the result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ. Christ. Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No proclamation, no sight. Proclamation is a result of seeing that he's better. He's alive. He's the king. And I will proclaim no matter what happens in my life. I love again, I know I've quoted Martin Lord Jones to you one time, but let's do it again. John has certainty John has written these things that they may know that they have eternal life. Christians are not people who are in a state of uncertainty. The very definition of Christians in the New Testament is of people who know who they are, what they are, what they have got. They are not men and women who are hovering in the dark. And can I just say yes and amen? Now, next encouragement from John is the best indication that you really love Jesus can be seen in how you treat other people. You're going to pick up on this real fast in his letter. According to verse 3, what's the, what's the motivation behind the proclaiming? Look what he says. This is really important. Because we live kind of in this age where winning an argument is more important than most anything. If I can just shut somebody down with a, with a timely word, and I gotcha. That's, that, that's the generation we live in. And I want you to pick up from the Scripture what is John's motivation behind proclaiming. Yes, he's seen it, but he's got a purpose in mind. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim so that you too may have fellowship with us. And we'll talk about this as we go through the book of 1 John. Fellowship is a really important word, and I'm not sure that we have a great handle on what the word means in the Scripture. But we'll just know enough to say this. If we proclaim the gospel, but then among ourselves, we do not treat one another any differently than how people are treated in the world or do not treat people in the world any differently than how they're treated in the world, then our proclamation is really hollow, isn't it? But if then we seek to have fellowship just here and among ourselves with no burning desire that others hear, then our fellowship becomes self-centered. They go together, proclamation and and fellowship. So it's important that we know that the two go together. So the best indication that you really love Jesus is not how many books you've read. It's not. It's not how many services you've attended. The best indication that you really love Jesus can be seen in how you treat other people. and It doesn't matter where you go, what you do. Say, so, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. But then you get on your phone and, man, if, if other people saw what you say, how you act, what you speak. I mean, this is, this is a tragedy that, that it seems increasingly that the Christians of the culture are have a reputation that you just really mean, really unkind. Should, should that be so? You know, all through the New Testament, it says, hey... Uh, paraphrasing a little bit, but even those who don't agree with you should probably come to your defense and say, well, man, the people that we can really count on to help, and especially the lowly and the poor in our city, are the Christians. So even if they don't agree with you theologically, they would lease up and say, hey, if we had to say, well, yeah, they're the ones doing all the heavy lifting around here. That was the reputation of the Christians in the New Testament. And then last encouragement, we'll do it fairly quickly. Abiding in the Lord ensures a life of joy. Abiding in the Lord ensures a life of joy. This week in the New York Times, David Brooks wrote an opinion piece entitled The Rising Tide of Global Sadness. Rising Tide of Global Sadness. In in that article, he, he writes about how multiple studies have been performed recently demonstrating that more and more people in the world are reporting that they are more and more sad. One study, for example, of 150,000 pop songs, so bless whoever had to do that and sit and listen to 150,000 pop songs, released between 1965, so maybe Peter, Paul, and Mary, I don't know, and 2015. Over that time, the appearance of the word love in the top 100 hits cut in half. Meanwhile, the number of songs containing negative emotions skyrocketed. What are you listening to, by the way? Music's powerful, my friends. Choose wisely. But it's not just music. Another study analyzed 23 million headlines published between 2000 and 2019 by 47 different news outlets in the United States. So we're trying to look at all of of that. The headlines grew significantly. You you didn't need them to study this to tell you this, right? The headlines grew significantly more negative with a greater proportion of headlines denoting fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. So it's not just music you need to pay attention to how you're investing your time. There's great money in some circles to be made by making you think you're miserable. The general... Social survey asked people to rate their happiness levels. Y'all just hang with me, this last one. Between 1990 and 2018, the share of Americans who put themselves in the lowest happiness category increased more than 50%, and that was before the pandemic, and it's worse outside the United States. It doesn't matter if you look at China, India, Great Britain, Tunisia, people all over the world in large percentages are saying they are miserable. He concludes the article by saying the emotional health of the world is shattering. Why is that? The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, we need people here in this church, in this city, who can say with great confidence, we not arrogance, confidence in the grace of God. We know we are from God. John can say, I was once a person who wanted fire to fall down from heaven and wipe out my enemies, but God transformed me, I was converted, I was redeemed, and the central reality of my life is that I am loved by God. I have fellowship with him, and therefore my joy is unshakable. So here's our conclusion. But a conclusion to a sermon is a little bit different than any kind of other form of public speaking because we're going to call you to some things. There's all sorts of different ways that we do an invitation and in response. I'm just going to say some things out loud, and if and they're all on the basis of what we've studied this morning, and you just respond in a way that seems honoring to the Lord, to you. Well actually to him. (laughs) So you may have been a Christian for decades. And if I ask you, how long have you been a follower of Jesus? And it's twenty plus years or more. You might want to say afresh this morning that God, you are greater than I am. You have been from the beginning. And I need us to see together that everything that John's going to say in his epistle, it starts with reverence for God. He's been from the beginning. So you may this morning just say, God, you are greater than I am. Restore to me a holy reverence for you. Next, may confess, God, I have absolutely lost my joy in building up other people. There is something in me and I am withdrawing. I'm going through too many days where my energy and my desire to build others up has faded. So God, renew me. Before I'm built up, I'm going to look to build up. Or you might say, God, I have lost my boldness in proclaiming the word of life to other people. John makes it clear. If we've seen the word of life, we proclaim the word of life. So God, help me. Help me in my silence in sharing the gospel with other people. Got two more. We good? And it's all right if we're not good. That's usually the first step in getting good. Admitting we're not. Father, I've not been treating other people in a way consistent with the gospel. Remember the hallmark of how if we we are followers of Jesus, how we treat other people. So you just begin to think through your interactions, your texts, your emails, when you're in the car riding with somebody, how you you talk about other people. So, So God, renew me today and help me in a way I've never seen how good and glorious you really are. Isn't that bursting out of his letter? And then the last one. Father, I have lost the joy of my salvation. I've been worn out or stuck in sin or devoted to other things and my own personal misery index has been climbing. Now, quick question. How does God do all of those things? If he really was going to do it, Restore to you joy in your salvation. Get you to have a treating other people consistent with the gospel itself. Do you know, do you know, um, do you know uh, we don't have to guess? Because John is the elder there in Ephesus. And 1 John isn't the only letter he writes, he also writes the book of Revelation. So here's the diagnosis messenger comes along, says, John, write this down, and you give this message to the church there at Ephesus. Oh, there's so many good things about you. You can spot a false teacher a mile away. You don't put up with a whole lot of lies. You suffer persecution. You've been persevering. But this I have against you. You have left your first love. Repent, therefore, and return to the works you were doing at first. I'm going to stand together and pray together. I don't know if it might be a specific encouragement that John gives us in these letters, these first verses rather. But here's the heart behind the invitation this morning. Return to your first, not obligation your first love father now we ask for grace by by your grace oh god help us not be a people who have opened the word thought about the word jotted some notes and then we just keep going the way we've been going i need what john says in my life i need his encouragements so I pray that you would, in your love for us, give us grace, those of us who this morning need to return to our first love. May it be so in a way that honors the Lord Jesus. In name we pray, amen.